I called Concept2 and I was asking for some parts and I was trying to explain it. And the woman said, no, hang on, hang on, hang on I'm going to stop you there. No one who works at Concept2 has ever seen one of these machines. She was like, they stopped making parts for them years ago. What's up? Welcome to Last Show Counts. Today we are doing a little episode from the road. Where are we, Tom? Uh, we're in Edinburgh. Why are we in Edinburgh? Uh, we've had a little trip up north and we've normally, uh, well, the last few years we've done one trip a year. So we've just started getting a second trip in to cover a few clubs up this way. So we started in Newcastle uh, and then today in Hexham and driven up to Edinburgh. Tomorrow we've got North Berwick. Uh, some ski eggs in Edinburgh Uni, and then on the way back, uh, some some eggs in Teesside. So yeah, a bit of a bit of a full week trip up north. Well, and once we're also finished uh, with the trip up north, we're also going to Cambridge on Friday to do some. Yeah, we got uh, Jesus College, and then a couple of extra eggs uh, on Friday. So yeah, it's a full week. Just because it's Easter, that doesn't mean we're we're off. So <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, we're quite often out and about. So yeah, we thought this is a good opportunity to to test the equipment on the run and make sure we can still um, do some cool videos and then also if um if we get a chance to sit down with some some interesting people who aren't local to us then we know that sort of equipment's ready to go absolutely so let's get into today's episode we've got a fun little show planned out we've got quite a few questions uh since releasing the the previous two episodes so we just wanted to do a little q a and kind of share some insights so yeah we got um we got a question like like a one day after i think we posted the boat race video and that kind of prompted us on our last video to to ask if anyone had any and just see if that could push push the um podcast in a in a different direction so yeah it's pretty good i'm i'm really surprised we've got some good questions so got some stuff to talk about i think um it'll be interesting to go over awesome let's get into it yeah cool so that first comment was um was posted on our boat race breakdown um so this was from vicky and the question was I was wondering what the thoughts were on the prospects for the women's coach with five losses in a row. Do you think this will discourage good athletes from choosing Oxford? So what do you think? Um, potentially, obviously Josh had said that you do get a situation um, when a club, one a club starts winning more, it might encourage more athletes to go to that club. Um, but then at the same time, I think next year is an Olympic year. So you're unlikely to have a lot of foreign or, or high-level international athletes coming over. And I would think that, that someone who's coming to this country to do the boat race is interested in winning and then would be more likely to choose the university that they thought was winning the most. Yeah. Um, whereas next year, I think it would be still, I mean, the same as they build it this year, more of a student race. Um, so I, I'm not not necessarily... Um, the case. So if someone's looking at the recent results, they might be more likely to choose Cambridge, but is is it going to discourage Oxford students in the future? Well, what could Oxford do differently? Obviously, a change of a coach isn't going to solve the problem straight away because it takes time to develop a program and put systems in place and to see real results and the yield from, from the work that's being done. And obviously, um, Oxford's women coach 
uh, doesn't have a bad track record, does he? Yeah, I had a, I actually just gone and looked at some of the statistics because I, I I knew that he'd done quite well in in previous races. But yeah, he's he's been coaching Oxford in '97. This is Andy Nelder. Um, he did the lightweights from '01 to '06 and won all five of those races, and then spent 11 years uh, as assistant coach to, to Sean on the men's side, um, and got nine wins of 11, seven which were successive. So he's certainly got some pedigree in boat race uh, racing. You could you could say potentially what he's learned under Sean and what works with the men maybe doesn't work with the women um but I think as well you've got to take into account um that both colleges have have stepped it up both universities stepped it up certainly since 2015 when it went on onto the the full race course in London um and I think there's maybe been a little bit of an arms race and Oxford's looked like they got there earlier so they won 2015 and 2016 by quite large margins and Cambridge has sort of come through since then um but again just looked at some statistics you know saying Cambridge have won five five in a row um but you look at some stuff I mean from from the men's races in the 80s um Oxford won nine of ten that decade in the 90s Cambridge won seven of three so it's not uncommon to have a a bit of a run. Yeah, a large winning streak. Yeah. I mean, again, with the women, um, who said look through the 90s, I think um, Cambridge won eight in a row. Um, those were on short courses. So some other some other things come into play. But um, I don't think it's... And I think also the winning margins have been smaller yeah. over the last few years. There have been smaller margins. And when you take that over a 20-minute race, we discussed before, the percentage change is quite small. I mean, especially if you understand the history of the event, it's not uncommon, like you said, for the for streaks to happen. So who's to say that, you know, Oxford aren't going to turn it around in the next eight years and, and clean sweep, you know? Yeah, and what we said about the other video, you know, sometimes when you lose quite heavily, that can be the inspiration to, to make some changes or um, try and do something slightly differently that maybe you didn't have the confidence to do if, you know, it sometimes takes a bad result to, to bring change. Um, and I think a lot of the things that we spoke about with Josh about Sean are still true. So recruitment is really, really important. Um, and if if they uh, found a way to to increase that or do a better job with that, then that could have a huge effect on it. Um, so, yeah, I think I guess it's probably in two parts. Potentially, yes, you could see certainly more international or high profile athletes wanting to choose the the university that's been winning previously. Um, but eventually, like I said, eventually the win streak will lose, uh, will will go, and um, uh, you know it, it. The odds will even out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I would certainly hope it wouldn't discourage athlete from choosing Oxford. I mean, both universities have got such great history, so they're both w worth rowing for and giving it a go. And also, if you're a competitive athlete, maybe you're going to be the one that's going to ignite that change. You know, maybe you're going to be the one that's going to push Oxford to change that losing streak into a winning streak. Who knows? Yeah, I think also um, Josh mentioned that there's more undergrads doing it and potentially if you're looking at an undergrad degree, one university could make more sense than the other. And if you're going to Oxbridge, it's probably likely that um, your your course is going to take take um, the front seat as opposed to rowing. And I think the other thing... Especially as an undergrad, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is, if you look at it, there's more and more athletes coming through the system and being developed at Oxford. So uh, an athlete who's been rowing in their colleges, maybe spent a couple of years in the development team and is coming up as part of Oxford, they've been in that squad, they're part of that Oxford team. I certainly don't think they're going to jump ship 
to Cambridge just because Cambridge have won the last five years. So, so with high-profile international athletes, yes, but certainly not with all athletes. And I, and like you said, like I don't think it's a win, uh, a win or loss streak that can that can be overcome, and it's certainly not the biggest that has ever been in the past. So, um, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't say it's the be all and end all. Cool. What's the next question? Uh, so we got one from Ollie. He said, "Have you ever moved to a new club or squad and f- and found they do some things drastically different, training philosophy or rowing style, etc.? And how have you dealt with that?" Oh boy. Yeah. Should I take this? reading this? I was like, okay, this one's for Pete. <laughs> okay. I've moved my my rowing career from Poland to England back in 2014. So I rowed. In, over in Poland for a couple of years and I did some stuff with the national team like some training camps and some trials and some you know spring assessments that kind of thing so I kind of know the style that they're trying to embed into young rowers so then when I came to England not only did I have to essentially relearn everything I had to change my entire understanding of how rowing worked now because it was in a club like Leander I could just blindly follow the words of the coaches like gospel and really just essentially shut up and listen and just ask as many questions as I can to to kind of get a really good understanding of what they're trying to teach me and I would say that this is this has paid off but if for example you're in a different position where you're moving to a club but you've got some rowing experience and potentially you might not quite get on with the new style of rowing they're trying to teach you I would still say you should try to buy into your new coach's program and then try it out, see if it's got any legs, see if it's got any merit, and then maybe make some um, adjustments, career adjustments based off of that. What do you think, Tom? Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't, um, I've moved clubs, you know, when I when I joined Leander, there was certainly a different system, but but I knew that that was sort of set up to, to take me where I wanted to go. So it was it was easy to trust that process but I have had changes of coaches year on year um and I would agree with you when you said sort of trust the process so I think the worst thing you can do is be half in and half out so if you're not if you say you're not quite sure if what your coach is trying to do is right or wrong I would trust that process for an amount of time so for a season or or certainly up until a number of races to actually play it through and see if if it has worked because different coaches work in different ways and there are different ways of getting the best out of your crew. Some coaches like to start from the front and, and work towards the back. Some some coaches like to start at the back and then work forward. So um, I definitely think there's a there's a period of time that you want to um, trust in that process and, and see if it pays off. Another thing that's going to depend definitely like how how long you've been rowing, how senior you are, what level you're at, as to how much it might be. You know, you might even have any effect on on if you did say something. Um, but in general, even if you maybe necessarily don't haven't bought in or this seems like a large change, the best thing you can do is just keep asking questions and not necessarily trying to to question or 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 in a negative way. I would just be like, if you don't maybe don't quite understand the process or where it's going or you don't see the end goal, just keep asking questions about that and like making sure that that it's that you understand what the purpose is. I think most good coaches are happy to try and explain why they're doing something in a certain way and to sort of show you the the long road and, and the reason why they're going about about it in that way. 
I think it's safe to assume that whoever your coach is, they're going to be semi-reasonable to a degree. So they will have their reasonings and, you know, justifications for using the philosophy that they're trying to incorporate into the club. So this is really just worth opening a dialogue with them and speaking to them, like you said, ask questions and try and find out exactly what they want you to do and what their philosophy is for moving the boat fast. Because I think from my personal experience, understanding what the coach is trying to do and why it makes it so much easier just to buy into the system and obviously if you're if you're moving um your club from somewhere else in the world to for example a place like leander well i obviously had no doubt in my mind that the coaches know absolutely what they're doing and i just need to trust the process listen to everything they say and just make changes as soon as possible to make the vote so there was no not really any time for arguing or else I guess I would just would have been on the sidelines. So it really depends on what you want to do, but I hope this answers, answers your question. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's a little bit difficult without context, but um, yeah, I can talk for a few different options and, and all of these things, are, there's, there's probably no finite answer to, to any of the questions we're answering. But Yeah, um, speak to your coach, trust the process and train hard. Yeah. Number three. What have you got? This one's from Emily. And it says, how should you or how do you row differently in different boat types? So I used to be a sculler. So I predominantly I spend my time rowing in singles, doubles and quads. So when it comes to sculling, the biggest difference that I found between boat categories was just how high the boat was sitting off the water and how sensitive you had to be to certain things. So obviously you can slam the drive so much more inside of a crew row like a quad versus you have to be so much more precise and you know fine-tuned in a single your movement has to be so much more i guess synchronized with with how you think you're rowing and like what the blade's doing and you have to make sure you you're min minimizing the, the wasted motion but another thing about the different boat categories is you can a, a surge in a single during a race is going to is going to certainly bring more of an effect than a surge in a quad because one it's just only one person making a change and two because the boat's lighter you can actually shift the weight on the water more significantly and like have it have a proper effect what do you think tom yeah so the main thing being probably the length of race for me so um the bigger the boat the quicker the race generally is going to be um so in terms of that certainly affect tactics a lot um for the most part uh eights uh, the 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 distances change less in terms of like a length is much longer. So clawing a, a length back on an eight isn't much different to clawing a length back in a, on a single or a double. So I think you would find in smaller races that the lead can change more often. So tactics might come in a bit more. Um, and then I think the the other bit being the the amount of the boat that you're responsible for. So in an eight, you're only responsible for one eighth of it, which I think is why you can get away with being a bit more powerful, maybe a bit less technical. Like traditionally, that those people might be sat in the middle of an eight. At, the, at the, each end, you might have someone a bit more technical um, and you would be able to get that boat going faster because you maybe had some very powerful athletes who in a pair might not be able to move the pair quite as well. But sat in the middle of an eight can be way more effective. So in terms you just got that platform that you can just, you know, have the boat set and you can just kind of almost row like on an ergo. Just lay the power down and look in front of you and just keep laying it. 
the higher you get to the top, the less likely it is that anyone's going to be doing anything badly. Um, and in terms of like saying in a bigger boat, you can just hit it harder. But yeah, if you're racing an international level, you still have to have that that real composure and that real accuracy with your blade work. Um, but uh, the other thing being like, again, for a shorter race in an eight, you might blast a lot harder at the start um, and you might get that psychological advantage. You know, once you've got that length, you're knowing that it's, it takes much longer for a boat to come back. You could have that advantage, you know, by being able to just kind of watch that crew behind you and uh, you can kind of measure your how much you work off them and if it looks like they're coming back you can you can make a move and that can be effective before they've come through you whereas in a single someone takes you know five ten strokes for burst they're half a length through you before you kind of like oh you know i need to make a move here um yeah you said something really important that um and that's due to how long is a length it really depends on which boat category you're racing in so for example in an eight a length is between three to five seconds depending on on your skill and ability level but in a single that is a length isn't even a second so in order to to gain a few lengths for example say you're going three to five seconds faster than someone in a third 500 you're obviously going to see a massive difference when it comes to just how far along you've you've managed to move your boat so yeah it's um it all becomes a bit finer uh the higher the boat class goes yeah i mean i also would say that i think um i think quite a common question i get as when i say i row is someone says oh do you, do you own an eight or do you own a pair and you said no we row in all different boats we race in all different boats we test in different boats um it can depend on the year on the event on the on the trial um and i think also i think that's something again i've heard from from coaching novices maybe quite often novices will say like oh what should i be do differently in a different boat i think on the whole not a lot I think I don't necessarily think. Oh, I'm in a pair now. I will, I will make these. You know, I will now row like I'm in a pair. And like, oh, now I'm in an eight, so I'll row like I'm in an eight. I don't think there's like that big a difference um, in terms of. It's more like being responsive to the eight. So I think when you're in an eight and you're one eighth of it, and that platform is there, you can maybe work harder or feel like you can work harder. Whereas in your pair, you're fifty percent of, of of the boat. You're the only blade on that side. Um, you just you sort of have to row a bit more with your partner. You have to be a little bit more like gentle with it. But that's just really in a, in a response to the boat. It's not like right now I'm going to row this way. I think for the most part you really want to make sure that you're just responding to what's going on at the time, listening to the cocks if you have one. I definitely wouldn't say this like a completely different rowing style, although some people might disagree with me. I mean, I would certainly discourage rowing differently. And uh, if you've just been rowing in a pair and your coach tells you to go in an eight, certainly there isn't a specific rowing style just for an eight. I think it's still legs, body, and arms. Yeah, yeah, the basics are always going to be there. I think that's important. But um, yeah, there's some there's some different stuff like that, that that we've gone over. Again, hopefully that answers answers the question. If not, leave a comment and we'll we'll try and add <laughs> we'll try and add a bit more to it afterwards. Sounds good. Right, next one. What have you got? Uh, so I've got two questions from Charlie. So Charlie said, I'm a cox. So my question is, what makes a cox stand out in a selection process or as part of a squad? So we'll start with that half first. That's a good question. So as a cox, my understanding is you have three roles at the very, at the very basic level. You need to make sure you're steering the boat straight and in the best possible line then you need to command the crew 
and kind of let them know what's happening around them. You need to give them information. You need to make sure they trust in you, that they're not looking outside of the boat. And then lastly, you need to motivate them. So firstly, you need to take a steering. Secondly, you need to make sure your crew is kept well informed by you. And then lastly, you can motivate them. Once those three are in order, then you're going to be further ahead than 90% of coxes. Yeah, I definitely agree with that order. I think that's pretty common for people to say, you know, if you're not steering, if you're not, if you're not doing your job steering, if it's if you're not on a good line and it's not safe, then just about anything else you say is is not is not really going to be that helpful. So there's sort of an order in in what you do first. But assuming that you've been coxing for a certain amount of time, um, and those are probably things you have been working off. I was just sort of thinking, like from my experience, like what have I liked from coxes that we've had or that I've had. Um, I think a big one for me is you, a cox that fires that link between the crew and the coach. So I think you, you you technically are an athlete, you are in the boat, but you're not a rower. Um, and you have that ability to be that coach in the boat, be the voice in the eyes of the coach at times as well. So you want to be that link between the two. Um, and I think another thing that's made coxes stand out is when they have an understanding themselves of rowing. So I think coxes who have try, tried rowing, I, I would encourage all coxes to row, not necessarily for a long time, but a couple of sessions in a boat or certainly on the ergo to get the idea of like the understanding of what you're asking your crew to do. And certainly I think um, when coxes have uh, rowed, I know I've had a cox before who's done a couple of 2K tests and that f for them made a difference in their head to understand that oh, when that last 500 comes and I ask for more, like I know, you know, I need to be aware of what I'm asking for because I, I felt, I felt that the, you know the pain in the last 500 and the, and the lactic and knowing it and feeling it's a different thing. I definitely agree that you should double with rowing as a cox, even if it's just jumping on an ergo or, or doing rowing. Where I'm from in Poland, I was told that coxes always used to train with the athletes. So, sure, we'd have a 12k erg session to do, but our cox would do it with us. They would do their own split but they would still complete all of the training because they were part of the crew. But I think what you said is also really, really important. As a cox, you were in a pretty unique position because you're kind of in between, like you said, between a coach and an athlete. So you have authority over the crew, but you also need to be translating everything that coach is saying into the, into the boat because obviously the coach doesn't have the cox box and the mic on. So you're going to have to be the one that um, talks to the crew, takes care of them, controls them, um, make sure that you know the plan for the session is carried out so it's a pretty it's a role full of responsibility and I really really hate it when coxes get looked down upon as just people who steer because as a role is just so much more than that but I wanted to ask you from a coach's perspective what do you look for in a cox when choosing one for the race um that's a good question for me it's a good mixture between um being aggressive and and commanding and and being able to motivate your crew in that way but then also having a sense of control and calmness um and being able really to take everything else away from the from the rowers and allow them to just row so you don't want them looking out the boat you don't want them worrying about the net where the next crew is um so those kind of being able to do those kind of things and just take the stress off the rowers you, you don't want them feeling like Every time you turn, they've got to be looking out the boat, you know, before before a race, they're turning to come onto the start line or something. You don't want them looking around, like trying 
thinking, oh, I need to help here or we might hit something. And obviously, the, the, if you haven't been coxing that long, you're going to make mistakes. Um, but uh, I think... Part of the process. Yeah, for sure. But I think, like you said, as a coach, I think you want someone who is able to take initiative, but who also does listen. So that is a balance. Um, but I think initiative and conviction. And I think I've seen some good coxes in the past who've been put off by maybe rowers. Maybe they've started to to spin the boat in a certain way. And then one of the rowers has gone, why are you spinning it this way? You know, we don't do it this way. We do it another way. And then they've been like, oh, oh no, uh, uh, or maybe we should change. And by that point, you're in the middle of the river and someone else is trying to come past. And so I think certainly like when you make a decision, you need to sort of stick with it and not not let other people kind of knock you off where you're going. Now, that being said, like if you're a very, very novice cox and you and you start making a decision and, and it's going to go wrong, you know, occasionally it might take a, an athlete who's with a bit more experience to just say, come on, let's let's change the plan here or something like that. But in general, once you've got past that that initial novice stage and you're a competent in what you're doing, like we said, that you're able to steer and, and make good calls. Um, and then lastly, as you get higher right up to the level, it's really being able to respond to the boat. So um, you can learn a lot of calls and you can have an effect by rolling through those calls. You know, let's work on the front end together. Let's line up the back end together. Let's add a 5% more on the legs. Like running through those, there's always, that's always going to be good. There's always going to be ways to pull a crew together. But what would set a cox apart would make, it would be a cox whose, whose calls are responsive to the boat and how that's going. So it's very down on one side call that would you know help level that out or something that responds to how the boat's moving and feeling um i think would be would be good for me definitely reading the boat is a is a big thing and also being able to have that connection with your crew like for example during the race if you can kind of engage different athletes in your crew in different stages of the race so for example you can have an athlete um in the middle of the boat and you can speak make a call directly to them make keep it personal and keep a good relationship with with your crewmates because then the more they respect you the more they will trust you and the more they will just blindly kind of follow what you say to them but also if you're an athlete have definitely like patience for the cox it is it is a pretty difficult position and there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of stress going on with trying to manage the boat and managing what's inside and outside because as a cox you also have to be like very aware of your surroundings and you know, it can be pretty tricky at times, so I would definitely encourage having a bit of patience. Yeah, I think trust trust is really, really important. And, um, you know, one of the, and there can be situations in a race, you know, there have been situations in a race in Henley where where we've been down and or a crew's been coming back and we're, you know, we normally would start our push set 300, you know, our, our final sprint to finish and it's 500 to go and the coxer says, right, we need to go now. And if you have that, trust in your cocks and you're going to go and if you trust that they know what you can put in then that's a big part but a big part of gaining trust is that doesn't happen overnight it's it's just something that slowly grows over time so i would say try and do the small things right so make sure always five minutes early for a session you know make sure always they're happy to help um the coach or the crew take some blades out or um again like be part of a squad um you know it, just because it's a land training session and you're not having to cox you can go down there. You can talk to the coach. You can look in the mirror at some of the techniques. You can sort of motivate your teammates. And yeah. for example, when they're doing a 2K test, you can give them that extra encouragement. And then, like I said, when you want to keep it personal during a race, you know what makes each different athlete in your crew tick. 
So use that to your advantage because that's a cheat code. Yeah, the longer in your crew, the more time you're going to have had with each other. And I think that's important. And it's important to to know what motivates people, what makes them tick. And the more you know about your crew members, the more you're going to be able to, like you said, say that thing that's really going to get get the most out of them during the race. I know definitely what would make me lose trust in their cocks. And that is the inability to count. Because if you're going to call a power 10, please make sure it's not 12 strokes. If you're going to say it's 200 meters till the finish line, it better not be 250. If it's 15 strokes till the finish, I don't I don't want to take that extra three strokes after. But again, I think just something like doing doing a 1K or a 2K flat out on the ergo, it gives you the appreciation of why 10 strokes has to be 10 strokes. I yeah. think sometimes it's just because if you haven't been in that situation, you know, you can't quite put yourself in the mind frame of the athlete who's like, I'm absolutely dying here. Like, I've only got 10 left oh, thank God it's the last 10. Like, that's all I've got. So, yeah, I think just showing understanding um, or trying to put yourself in their shoes can be can be really useful. Awesome. What's the second part of the question? So, yeah, the second part of that question is, also, what Cox recordings or races with strong steering would you recommend or that have left an impression? Well, I've got one that I really like, and it's you've actually showed this to me when we were doing some um, coxing training for our athletes last year, and that's a recording of, I think it's Scott Cockle during a under-23 world championship race in Rachita in Czech Republic in 2020? 2021, so I just looked at the title of the video. is under-23 world championship cox recording, GB Men's 8, 2021. We're going to add a link in the description just so you can find it easily. So the thing I like really like about this race is that the Cox does a very, very good job at isolating their crew from the rest of the competition. Because that's, I've personally never raced at that level, but I imagine you really need to be just focused on what you're doing and disallow all the external factors from being able to affect you in any way whatsoever. So Scott does a really, really great job at making sure that their crew know exactly what's going on they know what splits they're doing they know how far they are in the race you know he engages every single one of his athletes on a personal level and yeah gb ends up winning that race in a really really dramatic fantastic manner and i think scott had a really really great power to play in that yeah it's a fantastic race and it's a really good it's a race where you can see what the cox is doing has made a difference um because you can see how they work through and through and through and he keeps them together and how they're able to stay on their pace. And um, I think that's really good. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I like I like uh, the way he speaks to the crew. And another one I really like for that is um, the ladies' plate final in, in 2017. Um, it's Cox recording by uh, Harry Brightmore, who obviously now is a world champion and is the men's eight, uh, GB men's eight Cox. Um, I, again, I, like, I really like that one because it's that great mix of control uh, calming influence on the crew and then also the aggression and and getting that crew up for it and right you know making them raise the occasion and understand that this is it and and it's all or nothing you know um and quite often i think in henley finals anything's possible and you're going to be against it's going to be two fantastic crews and sometimes it's just that crew that's able to stick their hand in the fire a little bit longer or um take command or control of the race obviously it's going to be an incredibly high pressure situation i think harry does a really great job of just keeping that control and like i said it's 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 a mix i think quite often it can sound from the outside like a cox is just screaming and shouting and roaring 
but uh, there's so much more than that. Yeah, I think that that one with with Harry and, and with Scott, I think that's a really good way of showing how you can be aggressive but still calm and controlled. Um, and they just really take uh, everything else away from the rower. They let them know where they are. They let them know how it's going. We're on pace. This is fine. If someone's gone out too hard, it's if they're in front of us, they've gone out too hard. Just like that confidence, just bigging you up and allowing you to have that confidence to just go and do your job. Because inevitably, down the race, that voice is going to come and it's going to say you're not good enough and you're not going to win this and it isn't going to happen. And like having that other voice in the boat of that cox, in a cox boat, obviously, just reassuring you, this is fine, we're right here where we need to be. I think that's that's great. That's why it's really important to keep that balance between aggression and being calm and collected because if you're just going to be aggressive, eventually your athletes won't pay attention. They'll they'll start tuning the, the aggression out because they still need to be focused on what they're doing and then they're going to start having that internal dialogue, like you said. So the best way to prevent that happening is to make sure you have at least um, two modes. I think the other thing is it can be quite daunting as a cox when you're mic'd up to your crew um, to have any pauses in what you're saying. Sometimes you feel like you should be talking a lot. And I think, again, both of those those videos are really good at showing that it's okay to have a couple strokes. You know, if you've made a change, let that change happen. You can you can have a pause. You can move on to the next thing in a couple strokes. It doesn't have to be constant dialogue. And I think on that point that you said, if it is constant, it suddenly starts to just get put into the background a little bit. It doesn't make as much. It doesn't hit as hard. So, yeah, I definitely recommend those two. Um, and then in terms of steering, so they're on straight straight courses on a, on a 2K lake, so that's probably not a steering one. Um, one I think it was really good for uh, a steering decision that changed the race is the, the 2016 women's boat race. Um, in, that was a good one. I watched that live from the bank. Yeah. Um, Morgan Byron Williams, who is now a, 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 a rogue athlete, uh, which is not why I chose this, but she um, just made a really decisive call in the middle of that race. It was really, um, really choppy uh, out in the middle, which is obviously considered the, the faster water. She moves over to the bank uh, of uh, off her station, um, and that, that's a decisive move that that won the race for them that year, or certainly opened the gap up to to allow them to finish ahead. The commentators thought she was crazy. They, they were saying, "Oh, that's, I'm not sure that move's going to pay off. I'm not sure that was the right decision. Cambridge will have the advantage." Two strokes later, Cambridge get hit with a massive wave. And they start sinking. I think it is. I think uh, it can be very deceptive watching from a from wide end camera lang angle or watching from a helicopter the the water and how rough it could be. I think for a cox has a much better like view of how bad that water looks. So I I can see why they thought maybe initially it was it was quite mad, but obviously since then that's that's sort of gone down as a race where a cox made a decisive move. Um, again, like if if you're very if you're a very new cox, if you haven't coxed in that long. Uh, being able to make um, a change to the plan as big as that would probably be not necessarily recommended or very difficult to do. So it's going to depend on your level. Um, I'd also just recommend there's a string of boat race uh, final finals or boat races um, where steering is very important on that course, and there's some where steering's really made the made the difference. Um, so if you're having a look through through boat race. Um, races, then uh, that can be really useful. But yeah, no, I think I think that one just uh, as a great example of a really decisive 
move from the Cox that's that's led to a win. It made all the difference because uh, Cambridge went from almost not being able to continue umpire asking them if they wanted to resign to Oxford going from being head to head with them to winning by 24 lengths. So being a Cox can make such a big difference. So definitely don't be afraid of making those executive decisions if you're in a position to do so. Yeah, I really hate sometimes the Cox. I, I get the feeling that people say like, well, the Cox isn't rowing, so they can't win a race. But if they mess up, they can lose it. But I think it just it's just not true, really. And the Cox just as, is as important as any member of the crew and is as capable of, of winning or losing it as any member of the crew. Um, just because you're rowing, you know, you can also mess it up and not to put more pressure on any one athlete. But I think every member of the crew is important and and Cox's, you know, those races are, that we've just um, said, there, there's some really good examples of how the Cox can be a part of the win and can help win that win that race. But if you want to hear a little bit more about how much Cox's can make a difference, next Wednesday we're recording an episode with Morgan Byam Williams. So we're going to have yours truly on the pod, and hopefully she can bring some really saucy insights yeah, into we- the world of Coxing. Yeah, we'll definitely, Charlie, we'll definitely ask her that question as well. I think it'd be, be interesting to see her um, her top videos that she's watched um, and maybe made an impression on her, but then obviously what she would see um, that would help us uh, Cox stand out. And I think uh, she's also done a lot of coaching as well, um, as well as before she was in the team and during the team, she's she's um, Cox uh, Cruise, no, she's Coach Cruise, sorry in the GB team so um yeah some probably probably more useful insight than what than what we've got for sure but uh again hopefully uh hopefully that open uh answers your question to to a certain extent awesome do we have any more yeah one more so last one is Stefan and he said do you have a pre-race ritual and if yes what I don't really have a pre-race ritual I have more sort of pre-race habits so definitely I don't want to be eating any less than two hours before start time and I have to be made. Uh, I have to be changed into racing gear at least three hours before my start time. So I want to feel comfortable. I want to get used to the feel of the other one. I want to feel that special, you know, fabric on the day of the racing. I want to feel that sort of responsibility. But more, more so than this, I'm also going to just stick by my crewmates pretty much for the entire regatta day. So we're going to be doing everything together as a crew. And that was also told. Um, taught um to me by most of my coaches you know they said like as a crew on race day especially at henley at nat champs you know you have to do everything together you go for food together you go to the toilet together you rest together if one of you lies down all of you lie down you have to make sure you are as a crew obviously you don't have to take it this extremely but um just be aware that you know if you're if you have a really good bond as a team it can make the difference on the day uh but as for pre-race ritual maybe i'll eat some serene malt loaves but that's about it maybe i'll listen to some songs that i like but nothing more special than that p likes a p likes a malt loaf um yeah i mean i thought this question was interesting so i um i don't know whether with just specifically the the wording of it um um so in terms of a ritual what you might say like um something that you always did or a piece of clothing that you always wear in general i've i've sort of gone by the by the mantra that like the less you rely on the less likely you're going to have a problem if it's not there so if you have your lucky socks and your lucky cap and and you always uh you know drink a can of red bull and you always have three jaffa cakes and and you make this a ritual i think that gives you more that gives more and more chance of of you not being able to have one of those things and then really struggling mentally 
with feeling like you're not prepared for the race. Obviously, if you already have a lucky cap, uh, then that's probably not going to change. Um, all I would do is, is you know, make sure that I've just double, triple checked that I've got it with me. But um, that's no different from, say, your all-in-one. You know, when you go to regatta, like, you're going to make sure you, you've got it on you, you keep it with you, you check three times before you go. So in terms of a piece of clothing like that, um, but then to go more into, like, do you have sort of a pre-race process or do something that you all a, a system that you stick to like definitely and i think that's a really important thing of racing is to make sure that you stick to your processes to start running through uh, an order of things that you've got used to and for us certainly from the first race of the season we would start trying to get that process so two hours before we'd go for a little warm-up jog and a, and a stretch or like you said we might make sure that we've eaten we haven't we're not going to eat again with well, three hours or two hours before whatever works for you there's, yeah. some, there's some personal process um sorry personal preference but um yeah I think and then certainly as the race gets closer to the end of the season you get to bigger races the nerves get higher running through the process is something that's really going to help control that so I, what I always would get most nervous would be talking the pre-race chat per se before a world championships and it's because i'm never normally in a chat talking about how we might win uh, a world medal and I, that would really really stress me out and get me really really nervous but then we would go down to the boat and then we would start that process that we've done a hundred times before and we would check our boat over and we'd go and get changed and that going through that process allows your head to just go a bit into um, automatic mode and that really helps settle my nerves so um, in terms of having a process, I think that's important. And I, but I think that's quite personal. There are certain things definitely you don't really want to be eating within two two hours of a race, and you want to make sure you know you're not eating heavy meals or a lot of meat and things like that. Um, so there's certain things to stick to. But as a general rule, it's going to work between you and your crew and and how you work that out. And that's something that I think that you you can develop throughout a season. Every time you go to a race, you want to be trying that out. And I think. Uh, you want to you want to train how you race you want to you know you want to make sure you race every time how you want to race so I think even if it's a little warm at regatta or it doesn't matter every opportunity is a chance to run through that process and just streamline it and be like oh the, you know the jog was a bit early we went for a jog three hours before I was cold before we got in the boat you know let's bring that forward so you definitely want to like play around with that and use every opportunity to work it out um, but yeah I mean that's that's probably for me like process yes rituals no definitely and there's nothing wrong with having one if it works for you but if you are going to have one avoid the pitfall of making it too big because say your pre-race ritual is to have three jaffa cakes and two cinnamon swells well on a day that tesco's shut you don't want to like make sure that your 2k success is reliant on that so if you're going to have one probably keep it to a minimum but definitely it's worth having one just to get you into that mental zone. There is something really, really interesting that happens when you just go through the same motion, you know, you can ease the anxiety, ease the nerves and just get into your mode faster. But keep it down to a minimum because anything that's too big is just a recipe for, for disaster. Yeah, and I would just the other point I would make is, is don't make huge changes either. So don't listen to what we've said and and be like, right, you know, next time I race, I'm, I'm going to do this, this and this and this differently. You know, probably what you've started doing is a good start. Um, I wouldn't make any huge changes and um, whatever you normally do on a normal night, don't change that because it's the, the night of a race. It's like, well, we're racing tomorrow, so I'll eat four kilos of pasta. Like, don't, don't make those kind of huge changes. Um, 
a lot of what you're going to do is uh, a lot of winning a race is done in the in the hard winter months. Um, I don't think I think you can kind of maybe over do things too differently um, on race night or you know oh, I, I've got to do this I've got to do that the race is coming the race is coming and you can just kind of wind yourself up into into a bit of a mess are you trying to say that if I've skipped all the eggs in the winter but I eat four kilos of pasta the night before that's not gonna that's not gonna outweigh the it's carb loading I mean I like I literally said that because we did that I mean my first year at Leander we did lit, uh, one of our first uh, <laughs> one of our first uh, head races we did uh, head of the Trent and uh, our cops came over our house the night before and we we like we just cooked like a ridiculous amount of food and I think half of us felt a bit carb loading. Yeah, yeah, but half of us felt a bit bit mad the next day. Um so yeah, I think uh yeah, saying that uh make small changes, change things one at a time so you can actually see the effect of that. Um and um stick to your process but avoid rituals. Perfect. Yeah. So yeah. what are we doing next week? uh next week uh yeah we're going to chat with with morgan um hopefully we get that out by the end of the week um we are going to be fixing some more ergos as always uh some more row machines and then uh, fingers crossed we're also going to have a little sit down chat with our third athlete at row gear um susie dear a legend <laughs> yeah one and only um yeah and uh in terms of this um you know we haven't like i said we we're on the road we doing a lot of work this week so we haven't had loads of time to prep we've really just kind of written down the, the questions and gone for it so hopefully it's helpful i mean if there's anything else that comes up from it like um definitely let put another put another question in and um like i said we're not the be all and end all and um it's advice based based on on, on what we've done and where we've been um uh, but for sure i'm sure i'm sure there's bits and pieces that we've missed as well and um part of the reason for getting um other people on is is to get their experience of these same situations so for sure when we get morgan on um we'll ask her those coxing questions and and a few other similar ones and i think um hopefully over over time when we get more and more athletes on we get more and more more experience and just more knowledge to share perfect and yeah just because we're servicing and touring that doesn't mean we're not going to put episodes out so rogue is always on tour in some way or another so yeah if you follow the stories and try and make sure we keep keep an eye on uh on on what we're doing and post some stories and it's quite fun now one day we're in newcastle next day we're in scotland next day we're in cambridge so we definitely get around a bit well that's what happens when you uh service over 100 clubs in the uk yeah yeah it's uh it's uh it's a busy but um it's good busy's good yeah yeah it's great to be able to get around it's great to see new people and um yeah be able to fix equipment we did a, we did a dino strength training in the day which is ancient I mean, I called Concept Two. I was fixing some. I was fixing some for a different club. I called Concept Two and I was asking for some parts, and I was trying to explain it. And the woman said, "No, hang on, hang on. Hang, I'm going to stop you there. No one who works at Concept Two has ever seen one of these machines." She was like, "They stopped making parts for them years ago. Like, we don't even know what you're talking about." So yeah, that's a that's a dinosaur. But um, we got that one up and running, so that was good. It was good fun. Awesome, cool. In the meantime, if you've got any more questions um, for us, please feel free to drop them in the DMs or down in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. But also, if you have any ideas for episodes that you'd like us to cover, maybe there are some certain topics or like a something that you're struggling with, let us know and we'll try our best to to kind of cater to that as well. But okay. Are we going to say like, share, subscribe? Oh yeah, like, share, subscribe definitely um send it to all of your facebook groups and you know share it with your mom 
put it on the big telly and yeah just keep it running over the night so that we can get more views but uh, um i'm sure that's gonna help hopefully yeah if you like it yeah it's up to you awesome easy there cue the music <laughs>